Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Before I start, I have one clarification I need to make with the team back there on the schedule. So they have a, we have these nice worship orders now, and it has like how many minutes and seconds each song will take, which is really amazing. But then where it has the sermon, it says zero, 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 zero. So I was just wondering if my time was up or I have unlimited time. So can you give me a, which way does that go? No? No signals. All right. I'll have as much time as I need then. <laughs> uh, we are celebrating our graduates uh, today. And so um, it's also a special day in history. Does anyone know? What today's special day is? D-Day, right. It's um, June 6, 1944. It's D-Day. But none of you know, 77 years ago, for those of you who have trouble with math. And then, but I bet you don't want to know what happened 78 years ago. Because that was my mother's birthday. And my grandfather landed on the beach that day. And he made it. He made it. So praise the Lord for that. And just, yeah, we would um, need to have a lot different life without my granddad. So um, we appreciate that. So as we think about the past, and as we think about our graduates especially, this morning I wanted us to take a, a trip into the past. Apostle Paul and First uh, Corinthians ten one through thirteen gives us a picture back in the past. I was looking for that special passage for just for graduates, but it was in Second Revelation four, and I thought I wouldn't go there. So there is no Second Revelation, by the way. There's only one. So uh, we will be in First Corinthians ten and beginning in verse one. So if you have your Bibles or you have an app that you use, we're in Second Corinthians. Or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 1. We'll go to verse 13. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, And drank the same spiritual drink, for they all drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and they were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. 
These things happen to us, happen to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. As we begin thinking about this passage this morning, I want to kind of outline it in a way of warnings from the past for our present and our future. So things were written down in Scripture to remind us of things. One of my professors in college said, be sure to learn from other people's mistakes because you won't have time to make them all yourself. So Paul is trying to remind us of these things, and I want to remind our graduates, too, of the same thing, too. You've probably looked around at your classmates and already seen some mistakes that people have made. So learn from them so that you don't have to do it yourself to learn. But Paul gives us some examples, and and the first thing has to do with a warning from the past. And it's kind of interesting because uh, Paul starts off with, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact. Okay, so uh, facts matter, and ignorance of the facts also matter. (laughs) So Paul brings this out from the very beginning. And so he addresses them as brothers and sisters, and he talks about their ancestors. So their ancestors, the Jewish people, had a certain heritage, and they went through certain experiences together. And the group of people that he's referring to are the people who were the Hebrews who came out of the land of Egypt and went into the desert, and they went through a lot of experiences together. And so he says about them, this warning from a past, that the first thing that's true is that they followed divine direction. So these people are going to be giving a lot of information. They're going to have a lot of miraculous experiences. They're going to have a lot of direct supernatural revelation that we don't have these days. And there's a warning that comes with that. Because some people think that, Wow, if I just had a sign from God, then I would believe. If God would just answer a certain prayer or, you know, would show me a supernatural sign like he showed the people in Israel during that time, then I would believe. So we're going to take a careful look at that and see if that's really true. So one of the things they all had was they had divine direction. So Paul says that our ancestors were all under the cloud And so this cloud, if you remember in the Old Testament, led them out of Egypt. It showed them the way to go. So there was a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. This is the way Moses records it in Exodus 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the way to the Philistine country, although it was shorter. For he said, if they face war... If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. And the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Verse 21. 
By day the Lord was ahead of them with a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night the pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So they had this supernatural, visible guidance about their journey. And you notice, you know, as you guys begin your adult journey, and a lot of you are going off to college or going into the service or moving away from home, that um, they had this supernatural guidance, but the supernatural guidance that God gave them did not take them the shortest route to their goal. Remember what we read earlier from, from uh, Exodus 13? When, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. Because he knew something about their character. And he knew some ways that they needed to be transformed before they were ready to go into battle and to conquer the promised land. And so don't be surprised if God takes you on some roundabout journeys because he has something to teach you before... He gets you to the next place where he wants you to go. So he doesn't take them the straight journey. God is our spiritual life coach. They're life, life coach, have you guys heard about life coaches lately? This is a new, kind of a new thing. All right, if you, if you need help with a certain area of your life, you can hire a life coach. And they'll call you and check up on you and meet with you. And when I, when I first heard about it, I was working at Trinity Christian School, and one of the parents was a life coach. And we were having a conference, and she was like, Oh, I have to take this call. It's someone I'm a life coach to. And, you know, so. But God is our spiritual life coach. And he knows where we are. And he knows what we're going to be doing in the future. And so he programs a training regimen for us to get us ready for the next thing that he wants us to do. So we seem to have this problem with God whenever we're in our life. When something bad happens or something strenuous happens, something hard happens, then we start complaining and murmuring like the Israelites when we don't do that with our baseball coach. (laughs) We don't do that with our football coach. We don't do that with all of our other coaches in life. So we, we, we know that they're preparing us to get ready for the game or the meet or the match. So we accept the hard things they, that they require us to go through. We don't, I mean, there's a little bit of moaning and growing when, it, you know, you have to run shuttle runs or something, you know. But that's why the coach is there, to get you ready, to get your endurance up, to get your strength up, to get your muscle memory up enough so that whenever you get into the game or you're in the match, that everything becomes automatic and you're prepared and you're not out of gas, you know, in the fourth quarter. But God is our spiritual life coach. So he's going to take us ways and directions that we may find unpleasant at times. And yet God is training us for what he would have us to do in the future. And so they had a, they had a common divine direction. They also enjoyed a divine deliverance. So he's, he mentioned specifically about them all passing through the sea in Exodus Uh, 14 uh, tells the story of that. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and the chariots and the horsemen. Uh, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back into its place and the Egyptians were fleeing toward it 
And the Lord swept them into the sea, and the water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And the entire army of Pharaoh that, that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through on the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the, when Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore, then the Israelites saw the mighty hand of God displayed against the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and their servant Moses. So this warning for a past from the past is about a group of people who had, uh, had, were following divine revela- re- direction in their life. Okay, at this time it was a physical object, a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. They had both experienced a divine deliverance from their enemies. God had actually led them away and then back to the sea in order to make Pharaoh think they had lost their way in the wilderness and that so God could gain another victory for them and they would be assured they would never see Egypt again. And so they had a divine deliverance. They also had a divinely chosen leader. That was Moses. You remember Moses in the burning bush when God called him out. He was a reluctant leader at first, but he was a divinely chosen leader. So all these are all the, the things that God was giving to them that should have made them to have such a mindset to follow him. But we're going to find out that that is not what happened. And not only that, not only did they have a divine, a divine direction and a divine deliverance and a divine, divinely appointed leader, but they also drank divinely provided water and ate divinely provided manna. So God gave them all of these supernatural experiences, and yet, the scripture says, what about them? Nevertheless, what? God was not pleased with them. Okay? So some people think, if I just had all these supernatural experiences like people did in the Bible, then I would believe and I could have the kind of faith, you know, that could stand up against a king and be thrown into a lion's den or into a fiery furnace or something like that. But to the people, the people had a different problem. Okay? The problem wasn't enough direction The problem wasn't that they hadn't seen God deliver. The problem wasn't that they didn't have a good leader. The problem wasn't that God wasn't providing everything that they needed. There was a different problem, and it wasn't on the outside. It wasn't a lack of God uh, reaching in and showing himself to the people. There was another problem, uh, why God wasn't pleased with them and why their bodies were scattered around into the wilderness. So, shared, supernatural, miraculous, spiritual experiences does not guarantee that someone will have saving faith. Because if you remember from Hebrews, you know, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And these people, even though they had all this miraculous intervention in their lives, did not please God. God was not pleased with them because they lacked this essential element And that element was faith. So Philip Yancey talks a lot about this in his book called Disappointment with God. Because so many people are disappointed that God doesn't speak to them or do supernatural things for them the way they they see things happening in the Bible. 
And so Philip Yancey points this out that, look, we think that supernatural revelation and miracles will, will give us faith, but actually what we see in the Bible is that for people who have faith, it's a confirmation. But for people who don't have faith, it doesn't seem to help them. So we'll find out what that, what that problem is. We, don't, we see this you know, in the Israelites when they came out. They had already seen, t- seen ten plagues. You know, by the time they made it out of Egypt, they see the fire on the mountain and the rumbling and everything. And, you know, before Moses gets down from the mountain, they're already making idols. And, and the scripture here alludes to that as well, the things that they did during that time as part of the danger. So now, in verse 6, okay, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from, and this is the problem that they had. The problem wasn't that they didn't have enough evidence about God. The problem was this, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So what does that mean, to set your heart on an evil thing? He goes on to describe it in, in verse 7. And these are our instructions for the present that Paul gives us, based on what you see from the past. All right. So the first thing he says is, uh, keep your hearts keep from setting your hearts on evil things. So how do we know what things are evil? What things are not good for us? God tells us in his word. He outlines in scripture how to live, how to relate to him, how to relate to one another in a way that will be good for you. And so um, we're going to look on a little bit more at that. Number, verse 7 says this, don't make idol, don't, do not be idolaters or don't make idols for yourselves. And a lot of times we think we get a pass on that one because they, we don't, in our culture, as part of our Western culture, we don't have graven images. We don't have golden or, met, or silver or wooden or stone statues that people bow down and burn incense to and offer sacrifices to or anything like that. But idols don't have to be a physical thing. It doesn't have to have a physical object that you bow down and worship. Even in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 14 talks about this whenever it says the people have made idols in their hearts. Okay? So an idol is, is a false god. It's anything that takes, anything that, that tries to usurp or takes the place of God. So um, the men's group, we're, we were reading in a, a book a while back called Gospel Treason. Uh, it's actually written by a classmate of mine. I was surprised to find out from um, Bible college days. And so I want to read just a short passage about this. He has a great, uh, Brad Bigney is his name. Uh, he was always a very serious student, always in the library. I was hanging out with my friends in the dorm and stuff <laughs> while he was studying. But um, he, he talks about, he gives a good, some good questions to ask yourself to find out if something is, is more important than God. Okay, and one of the questions is he, that he asked is, um, will you sin to get it, whatever it is? Okay, so if it's, let's say, a person says material wealth is really important to them, and you, you want to find out, is it so important that it's become an idol to me? Okay, and then you have to ask yourself, would I sin or have I sinned in order to get it? Did you lie, steal, cheat? Uh, were you dishonest about something in business? Um, 
Did you neglect family responsibilities and the worship of God in order to get your material wealth? Do you not have time to read your Bible or study Scripture or come in fellowship together because, you, because you've got to work, you know, seven days a week? Okay. So that's a good question to ask yourself. Do I, am I willing to sin to get it? And if you are, then you're willing to disobey God, okay? And what it is, you're saying, okay, now God tells me I shouldn't do this, but I want this, this is more important, so then I'll, do, I'll disobey God in order to get this, okay? So that's, that's a question for when it becomes an idol. Another question is, will I sin to keep it? So is it a relationship and you really like this relationship? And, but the, the relationship is moving towards sin, and if the person says, if you don't sin, you do, do this certain level of involvement or whatever it is, then I'm going to break off the relationship, and you think the relationship is so important that you'll sin to keep the relationship. Now it's become an idol, because now you're, you're pursuing that over what you would, your obedience to God. So that's two questions to ask yourself. I want to read this one um, passage. It's a paragraph that he quotes from Richard Keyes. And he's talking about idolatry being false worship. Uh, It's misplaced, misdirected worship. And so uh, Richard Keyes has this explanation. At the most basic level, idols are what we make out of the evidence for God within ourselves and the world. If we do not want to face God, face the face of God himself in his majesty and holiness, rather than look at the creator we have to, and have to deal with his lordship, we orient our lives toward the creation where we can be more free to control and shape our lives in desired directions. However, since we are made, we are made to relate to God but do not want to face him, we forever inflate things in this world to religious proportions to fill the vacuum left by God's exclusion. Listen to that again. However, since we, make, we are made to relate to God and do not want to face him, he's making the point that the reason why people don't want to relate to God is that God is holy and he has requirements for us and guidelines for us Okay, to, to make the world the best place it can be in a sin-ridden world. And if a person is not willing to submit to that, then they don't want to relate to God. So something else has to come in and take the place. And so he says it this way. We forever inflate things in this world to religious proportions to fill the vacuum left by God's exclusion. So a God is, uh, an idol is anything that you seek more than God for your significance, for your meaning in life, for your purpose in life, for acceptance in life, anything, anything that you go to to, sit, to have those things. You'll see people do crazy things when you mess with their, with their idols, Okay. So, um, you know, for some people, it's their material possessions or, uh, you know, their truck. Don't mess with my truck. You know, it's like <laughs> we had, a, I was working in construction uh, in my younger years, 
and I just washed, waxed and washed my uh, little Ford Ranger pickup truck that my dad had given me, and it was looking really sharp, and a guy set his lunchbox on it, on my freshly washed and waxed truck, you know, on the hood. And so I was like, I was trying to be polite, so I said, you know, please don't put your lunchbox on my, my truck. You know, and we were we were working in an apartment complex, and it, we were part in a parking lot, and then it had a slope down there, you know. And so he just kind of laughed it off, and and I was like, seriously, dude, just take your lunchbox off my truck, you know. And he laughed, you know. And I was like, no, I I really am serious because I'm gonna throw you in your lunchbox down that hill if you don't get it off my truck, you know. So you can tell. When you start getting close to people's idols by their responses, okay, by their responses to whenever you threaten or you, you mess with the thing that's most important to them. So it could be a relationship. Um, you ever heard of any insanely jealous people in relationships? Okay. Uh, very controlling people. In relationships, and it can be because that's their one significance in life. And if they don't have that one relationship, then they don't feel valuable, and they don't feel loved, and they don't feel significance, and they don't have meaning, and it's a whole lot all tied up into that. Okay, so yeah, watch out for clingy people when you get a little older. You know, but these are things that, that people make as idols. They inflate the things of this world to, you know, divine proportions. Like this thing is really, you know, having success is really going to give me meaning in life. It's really going to make me happy. Okay? So you may remember the old quote, you know, I forget who it was. It was Rockefeller or one of those really old rich guys who said, uh, yeah, and they asked him how much money you need and he always said one dollar more. Because it's never enough. It's never enough. Because we found out in the last year, you know, um, money can, your job can go away. Your health can go away. Your access to all the things that you enjoy the most, whether it's a ball game or, you know, some other hobby that you have, all that can go away very quickly in just a matter of days. And all based on one thing, really, and that's fear. That's fear. And when, the, when life pulls the rug out from underneath you, okay, you find out what you've been standing on. And that's a little bit threatening sometimes. But God does it <laughs> because he's our spiritual life coach, right? So he's going he's gonna to take us by the way where we can drop off some of that baggage that we shouldn't be carrying, okay, that we, shouldn't be, that we make overly important in our life. So that's one of the things that is one of our instructions for the present. So we keep away our hearts, our hearts from being set on evil things. We don't make idols. He says, don't commit sexual immorality. That was actually part of the worship in a lot of pagan religions. There was public sexuality in a lot of pagan religions. It happened back during Moses' time. And that's what he refers to whenever he talks about uh, we shouldn't commit sexual morality as some of them did. And in a day, 23,000 of them died. This was whenever Moses came down from the mountain and they were worshiping the, the golden calf. And they had, they had seen this kind of worship in Egypt. And so they had decided, 
that since Moses had gone to the mountain, he was gone for 40 days, and they didn't know what happened to him. Then they asked Aaron to make them a god and lead them, and Aaron fell prey to that. He gathered their earrings, and he said, I just threw them in the fire and out out popped this calf. Okay, well, we know better than that because the previous verses tell us that he fashioned a calf for them. And so this is what happens when people follow a person or a spiritual leader, even a divinely appointed spiritual leader, other than God. So whenever the leader is missing or the leader moves on or the leader dies, okay, then all of a sudden there's a crisis of faith because they weren't really following God. They were following a leader. And we have to be careful about that because people are fallible and they're also mortal. Last time I checked, there's like a 100% chance of dying. Maybe not today, but eventually, (laughs) unless we get resurrected, unless we get raptured. So we really have to watch out for that because the people, we have to remember when the people came out of Egypt, okay, there were 600,000 fighting men, Scripture tells us, So a lot of people estimate maybe 2 million people came out, and it says that they were a mixed group, okay? So they were probably mixed racially. There were probably some Egyptians, and there were a lot of Hebrews, and there were probably other other people who were enslaved who got their get-out-of-jail-free pass, and they said, yeah, we'll go with you guys. We're not going to hang around here to to wait for them to, to enslave us again when they put the country back together after all the plagues. So they all went out. It would be a little bit like, you know, if you... So the people were in Egypt for about 430 years. Seventy people went in. And then we have these hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, coming out. Okay? So it would be a little bit like, take your family name and dial back 450 years. Now... Gather all the people who are related to your ancestor 430 years ago. And then some people that work for them. And then just some of your neighbors that want to come along. And let's all go to the promised land. Okay? So that was the group that came. They weren't a bunch of pious, holy people. (laughs) Okay? It was a very mixed group. And so that group rebelled often. Okay, even after seeing all those examples of divine intervention that we had seen before. One of the things that we have to remember is, uh, and Jesus talks about this principle in his teaching, is that wherever there is greater light, there is greater judgment. So whenever people pray for divine revelation and don't and get it, and don't respond. There is a lot stiffer judgment for it. Okay? So that's what happened to these people. That's why the earth opened up and swallowed some of them. And snakes came and bit them. And then God sent plagues to them. Because God had, was flexing uh, 3D you know, space-time muscles. Showing them who he was and what he was. But they had this heart issue. They had a different agenda in their heart. They had idols in their heart that were more important than following God and doing what God was. No matter how powerful he seemed to be. No, I still want, 
I still want my own opinion and my own desires about sexuality, for instance. Okay, big deal nowadays. They had the same thing there, okay? You know, God, yeah, he led us out of Egypt, blah, blah, lost the, lost the divine ruler, uh, the divinely appointed ruler, Moses. So now what do we do? Oh, let's go back to the, to, to the other gods who let me do whatever I want to do. Okay, and let's have a big old party, all right? It was like tailgating before worship, you know, kind of thing. So I'm not trying to incriminate any tailgaters, but be careful there. <laughs> they, they had big parties before they had their pagan worship service, and a lot of it culminated in, in a lot of gross sexuality. So um, God tells us to, not to do that as our instructions for the present. Uh, don't test God. So... Um, it says in verse 9, we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. So, you know, the tests that they're referring to, whenever they got to a hard spot in the training regimen, okay, so God was giving them spiritual workout to get them ready for going into the promised land. Well, one of the things he did to them is he starved them. Now, that sounds kind of cruel, okay, but... Whenever God provided manna for them, it was at the point where they were starving in the wilderness. And you have to remember now, God is training them. He's training them. He's trying to get through this mixed, divided, rabble mob who really don't want to follow them. A lot of them don't want to follow them. And so he brings them to the point of starvation, and then he gives them manna. To test them, the scripture says, that he wanted to test them. In Exodus sixteen fourteen, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them to see if they will follow my instructions. So they had been slaves in Egypt and followed their master's instructions. But God was trying to train them to follow his instructions. Because he's going to give them some really interesting instructions when they get to the promised land. He's going to tell them things like, okay, this is the strategy for the walled city Jericho. All right? So you're going to walk around it, and you're going to, you're going to blow trumpets one day, two days, three days, four days, five days, six days. And then the seventh day, you get to walk around it seven times, and then everybody shouts, and then the walls are going to fall down. Okay? So in order for you to do that, Okay, you're going to have to have faith that following God's instructions works. And so God gives them manna to teach them to depend upon him. And then he gives them instructions about it. You, go, you gather so much every day. You don't save it over to the next day. And then on the day before the Sabbath, then you gather twice as much. And then it will be enough. And you don't go out and gather on the Sabbath. And so the first thing happens, uh, people gather a whole lot. Because it's always good to save, right? So they gather a whole lot, and they found out that the part that they didn't eat the next day became full of maggots and worms. And so God was angry with them. He said, this is what I'm talking about, guys. (laughs) You don't follow my instructions, okay? And I'm trying to put you through this spiritual workout to get you to the point where you'll follow my instructions, whether it makes sense or not to you. And so, yeah, so then, then they get to... They get to the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath. They go out and gather the day before the Sabbath. And then some of them go out to gather on the Sabbath after God told them it won't be there. Okay? And so, but they go anyway. 
when God says, it won't be there because I told you to gather it the day before. Because he's trying to get them to follow his instructions. So God gives us his word as his instruction book. There will be times when nobody will be doing what God says to do. Nobody. So there's a relative of mine. I can name him right now, but Gabe knows who they are. <laughs> okay. They, they went off to college. They came back doing things that they never did before and that, that their parents don't do. And, and then the parent questioned them about it, and they said, Mom, everybody does that at college. I don't know of a single person who doesn't do that at college. Okay? So if you're, if you're following your peers, then you just do what your peers do. But if you're following God and you, you have learned from him that his ways are the best ways, hopefully learn from other people's mistakes and not your own mistakes. Because everybody is going to learn sooner or later that God is right. You can obey him and then watch everybody else make a mess of their life and say, yep, God was right. Or you can disobey him and you can make a mess out of your life and in the end you'll say, God was right because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So here's our instructions. So um, keep your heart from setting your heart on the evil things. Don't make idols for yourself. Don't commit sexual immorality. Don't test by God by accusing him. So basically they were complaining. When they got to the point of starvation, they accused God of bringing them into the desert to kill them of misleading them. That's, that's where they were as a nation. And they were ready to stone Moses and Aaron. So they're accusing God of, of planning to, mur- to kill them in the, in the wilderness. Okay, accusing him of, of not being good. And so another thing that are part of our instructions for the present, don't complain about God's timing and his provision. So God got them to the point of starvation, okay? So that's his provision. He gets us to the part where there's nothing left. Anybody ever been there before? You've been there, like, financially to the part where there's nothing left, and then there's only God left, and then God provides for you, okay? And we learn that it's God who's providing for us because it's not my ability to save it all up or amass it all or you know, to gather it all, even though we have some responsibility there. But, you know, if, if your bank account looks like mine, you know, he goes, you go, hey, things are going great. Yeah, well, so <laughs> property taxes are due and, you know, <laughs> some, you know, insurance is due or whatever and or the refrigerator breaks down or the car breaks down or, or whatever. There's this ebb and flow that keeps us from being too prideful in our accomplishments a lot of times. And so we shouldn't complain about God's timing because God is teaching us things whenever he brings us up and down. Our health may go up and down. We may get to points where we're very low. And what do we do? When do we get to those points? We grow closer to God. Okay? It happens in relationships. Okay? It's not the time. <laughs> it's not the right person. Sometimes we have to give up what we think is a good deal for the better deal that God has for us later on. 
So, Dick, now here's a hand. I need to show a hands. How many of you are married and you lost what you thought was a really good relationship and was very sad about it, but God provided somebody better for you? Anybody? Thank you, Kay, for raising your hand. I appreciate that. I'm raising my hand, too. I was like, remember that. There are going to be times in your life where things look like they're going really well. Yeah, this is the one and everything. And then it just evaporates. Things happen. But God is like, you know, like, like the baby making mud pies, you know. And they're just eating that mud up, you know. And you know, the parent wants to take the mud pie away, right? Here's a, how would you like shoe fly pie, okay? You're not from around here if you laugh at shoe fly pie. I'll tell you that. So, you have to be from somewhere else, okay? Pecan pie, okay, how about that one? God wants to give you something better, but you refuse because you think that mud pies are really yummy. It looks great, but you haven't tasted it all yet, and you haven't eaten a whole pie pan full of it either. And God is trying to wean us away from those things. So, he does that with his timing and his provision, in our lives to teach us to be dependent upon him and to accept the thing that he gives us as what is best. You, I mean, you have to realize, you know, whenever they started complaining about the food, they were like, back in Egypt, <laughs> we had leeks and onions and smelled really bad. You know, it was, you know, we had meat in every pot and you just, it, it was always better back in the day, right? And God took them from this variety, okay, in slavery, okay, remember that part? <laughs> it wasn't just good food you had, okay, but you were enslaved, remember, and you cried out to me, and I answered you, and I brought you out of that, and so now you're going to trade uh, manna, okay, which was God's provision for, for them. You're going to trade uh, manna for enslavement, okay? You've got the wrong perspective, okay? If you think it's, it's greater to have no freedom and meat in your pot, okay, than to have freedom with God supernaturally guiding you and manna. Because, I mean, we talk about food all day long nowadays with all the chemicals they add in it, right? All right, but this was the perfect food. It was a superfood, Right? It was like you could just eat this and nothing else and live for 40 years, even in a desert environment, you know. So God was giving them the perfect food, but it wasn't enough because it was the same thing every day. It was, you know, banana mush and banana bread and, you know, Hannah banana. And it was just, just everything, you know, was manna. So then, you know, it got to be very boring, Okay? Is it boring to you to, leave, to, to live God's life for you? I mean, is it boring to go to the, home to the same person every day? Is it boring to go to the same school or go to the same church or to listen to the same parents or whatever? I mean, you need some excitement like those other people have. You need to go home and have two people at home that think they're the one. Now that's real excitement. Okay? You can get dishes and knives thrown and all kinds of things. House shot up. 
You don't want that boring old one spouse. That's what the world tells you. Okay? You don't want are you boring old parents who who like make too many rules. Too many rules for you. Oh no, you want the kind of parent that like gives you alcohol and beats you up later, you know, and it's just like you want some of that kind of excitement, you know? You don't want just the, you know, what God says here, here's the best kind of dynamic for you and your family. Okay? We have to learn to be satisfied with what God gives us and not let Satan glamorize with lies all the other stuff that he's going to use to steal, kill, and destroy. We have to get some clarity on that or we're going to fall to his temptations. And that's the next thing that we have, a promise for the future. We talk about warning from the past and instructions for the present. Now a promise for the future. And the, and the promise is about temptation. So he, Paul says in, in verse 11, These things happened to them as examples, and they were written down as warnings to us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. It reminds you of that verse in Galatians. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So we, they, Paul's saying, look, you are at, in, living in a time period when all these prophecies have come fulfilled in Messiah. And about now how God is closing the book on the Old Testament law, the, the, the constitution for the, the nation of Israel, and all the dietary law, and the health law, and the war law, and the priestly law, and all the sacrifices you would have had to make, God closes the book on those requirements, and now he opens the book to believing in his son and receiving for forgiveness of sins through his son and his death. And so he says to them, look, they're warning to us because now we're at the point in, in history where the culmination of the ages, this plan of salvation that God talked about when he told Eve about one of her seed will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will strike his heel. All that is coming, to, and this is where you are. You're not in this area where we don't understand everything's going to happen, you know, with salvation and what the Messiah is going to be like. Now you're, you're at the culmination of the ages. You're at the high point in God's, one of the high points in God's plan of salvation. And so he says that, that's why these things are written to us. So, in verse 12, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. When you think you're standing firm, that's a sign of pride that you've got it all figured it out, that, you know, you won't fall to that temptation or whatever it is. So Paul warns us about that kind of pride. And God is faithful. So all these, these promises are based on the faithfulness of God, not on your ability to interpret and figure things out. He will not let you be tempted above what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way that you can endure it. So the temptation is, has three characteristics. So one, temptation is common. The temptation that you will have will be common to man. There will be no kind of temptation that's unique to you. There will be like, well, you know, I just couldn't help myself because I was in this situation. It was now, you know, nobody else has been in this situation. Paul says, no, there are no situations like that. It's all very common. It happens every day somewhere in your hometown. So he says the temptations are common. They're also limited, Okay. He says that God will not uh, allow you to be 
tempted above what you can bear. Your testing will be measured. We were talking about this. With, um, Howie was teaching for me this morning. Thank you, Howie, so I could focus on this. And we were talking about this, how God is limiting. There's a, there's a reporting going on in the book of Job. Angels, son, the sons of God, present themselves before the Lord. And then Satan being an angel, not a son of God anymore, but an angel. He also reports. God questions him. God points out Job. He makes an accusation because Satan means accuser. So he makes an accusation that the only reason that Job follows God is that God has protected him and given him a lot of wealth and a wonderful family. And God says, no, I'll reduce the hedge of protection just to around Job himself. You can't touch him. You can take away everything you want, everything else, and you'll find he won't curse me. And he does. Job passes the test. And then Satan says, oh, yeah, but, you know, everyone will do anything for their health. But if you, you, you strike his flesh, then, then he'll curse you. And God says, no. He tightens the hedge of protection even closer to, to where only thing you can't do is take his life. And so he becomes painfully ill and still passes the test. Because temptation is not only common, but it's measured just for you. Okay? So we can't use that as an escape that I was tempted above what I could stand. Okay? So part of the temptation, part of avoiding temptation is focusing on the heart issue. Okay, you remember whenever Jesus said, you know, you've heard it said don't commit murder, but I say to you, no, nah, it's not enough. If you wait till you get to the point where you're ready to commit murder, okay, and you're that angry, then you've really missed the whole point. That's not the kind of world that God really wants. A place where everybody is so angry you could almost kill somebody. That sounds like a wonderful place, doesn't it? A bunch of happy people. No. God says, no, you go, you go back up. When you get to the point where you hate enough to start calling people fools, okay, and then that's the point where you need to do some examination on your heart. Uh, because God really didn't, God didn't create a world with Adam and Eve where people get angry with each other and hate each other. But just don't kill each other. Just as long as you don't kill each other, you're okay. Okay? That's not the kind of world that God created. Uh, the perfection that he has for us in heaven. And so we have to deal with those hard issues. So sometimes the avoiding, sometimes the temptation, the, the, the limit is, the, and the next thing is that a temptation is escapable. Okay? Sometimes the escape is way back here. All the doors, all the escape doors, okay, happened uh, before you were alone in a car somewhere, okay? The escape doors happened when your parents told you don't hang out with those people, okay? The escape doors all happened early on and you passed them all, okay? And God gave you directions, don't do that. Go this way, you can get out here, okay? But because we have heart issues, we pass the escape doors, and then we get to the point where, wow, it does seem like it's impossible not to sin. But we really haven't recognized. So whenever, and we were talking about this in discipleship the other week, um, Jesus, whenever he, he gives us um, the Lord's Prayer, although it's not, his, it's not really the, the, pray, the prayer that the Lord would pray, okay, because... He wouldn't say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, because he didn't have any. He didn't have any sins to be forgiven. 
So he's teaching us how to pray. And one of the things he says in there that we don't really really do very often, and it's a real important part of, of conquering temptation, there is that part that says, lead us not into temptation. Do you remember that part? So Jesus tells us, whenever you're, you're praying, and this is your routine, these kinds of, this kind of pattern of prayer, okay, you're not praying like, Lord, help me to uh, resist the temptation when the temptation comes. But because God knows what we're made out of, and he knows we fail so often. So Jesus said, yeah, you really need to be praying like back here. You don't even get on that road. That you don't even get on that road. And that God gives you wisdom. And that you're in his word enough that you recognize when you've gotten on the wrong road. And it leads to a place where God doesn't want you. But you have to have that heart that is willing to submit to God. And to say, God knows what's best. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what everyone else around me is doing. But God knows what is best for me. And I may not see it now. And I may lose some things now. For following God but in the end I'll see the wisdom of his ways so as we're thinking about these lessons from the past and D-Day and uh, June June 6 1944 we should be learned we should learn from history we should learn from what God has shown to us in the past we should learn that yeah we may and you you graduates have been here in church for a while just because we have a common spiritual experience, okay? So you've come to church with your parents, without your parents. You've heard the same teaching. You had a spiritual leader, a godly spiritual leaders in our church who taught you from the Word of God. You have all these spiritual experiences, uh, not as, as dramatic as what the Israelites had, not special revelation, not columns of fire and cloud and deliverance through the Red Sea but we've had a lot of common spiritual experiences but it's not about having common spiritual experiences it's about the heart and having the right kind of desires in the heart so now it's going to be your time to choose and for many of us we're still making the choices okay we have a common experience but our hearts really set on loving, honoring, and obeying God wherever we are. Or is it just because we're in a certain environment around a certain group of people? Or we follow a certain leader, like they followed Moses, and the minute the leader is out of the way, then we're going to do whatever our heart wants to do. So we need to learn from these lessons of our past. Let's pray. Lord, you would keep us from so many things. Lord, that would be empty and that we would find out after decades and decades that, are, that don't provide fulfillment, they don't provide meaning. Um, Lord, they're going to leave us empty in so many different ways. We pray, that, Lord, you would help us to see your ways as true. We, we pray that you would give us a wholehearted devotion toward you, that we would joy in your commandments in obeying and serving you that we would pray and we would seek to become more holy and follow closer to you, Lord. Not ask ourselves, how, far, how much can I get away with, but how much can I get away from and get closer to you. We pray that for these graduates and for the other folks here. Lord, help us to continue to follow your ways.
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.